it, was there something uh chemicals or something um there's uh, dominguez channel is just getting grody again yeah the channel there is like literally there's rotting vegetation and there's a shit ton of sulfur in the air jesus yeah like it's horrible that's what they get for not draining nigger slew okay all right <laughs> <laughs> no bam so um I'm not, a, a what I'm about to tell you is 100% not a joke. Um, a lot of South Central Los Angeles, like Gardena, Carson, whatever, is built on what used to be a large, like, still water lake that was named Nigger Slough. Okay. Yeah, deadass. And so, like, the leftover bits of it are the Dominguez Channel, and the reason they drained it was because, like, the water would get, like, you know, standing and nasty because it didn't drain into the ocean, and it would get all disgusting like this. Jesus. And now there's sulfur everywhere, and it's like my throat is burning because none six days. None of the news stories are telling you that, though. Um, I mean, the, the, I mean, I guess that used to be the name. People think racism's over, so my. Yeah, it was the name in California as recently as like 1895 when they drained it. Oh, I'm not. I'm, I'm surprised it's not a more recent. What's the school? That's the Tar Babies. That's, that's Compton. Even you guys didn't believe that they, that Compton were the Tar Babes. I'm like, they're legitimately the Tar Babes on their baseball jersey in bold. It says Tar Babes on it. When I played against them, I go, this isn't real. Um, Compton Tar Babes. No, I I tell people all the time that um I grew up in San Diego, <clears throat> and it was very common to see Confederate flags. Yeah. And they used to sell Confederate flag like a uh, little do rag things about the Seven Eleven by my house. Okay. Showing up your Southern pride. <laughs> like fuck the Northerners. Yeah, now California got its pockets. Uh, indeed. Hello humans, welcome to Turf Wars. This is episode 34 of your Power Report. I am Dan from the Internet, joined for a panel episode by Bam. Yes, that's me. I'm Bam. And Sean. Hello. And um, we are, as usual on panel episodes, we kind of get to do a breakdown of what has been going on in the news over the past, you know, month, because, you know, weekly news daily news maybe it's a little bit too much there's there's really kind of just big picture things going on or at least big picture things we want to emphasize here and um a lot of media is not talking about the strike waves that are happening i think we're going to be like kind of uh, ahead of the game here um because it's a, obviously a thing that is very key and center to leftist politics um worker power democratic um worker uprisings and things like that direct um a direct relationship between the power dynamics between bosses and uh the people who are actually expending their labor on the lines um but you it's also in the context of an economic system that i think has been thoroughly misunder or like thoroughly like poorly told about um at least during COVID-19 here. So we'll be talking about that very shortly. Um, Democrats have tried to do their Build Back Better plan, but once again, um, a coal baron from West Virginia is preventing them from doing anything, or at least that's what they want you to think. And lastly, begrudgingly, or maybe interestingly, we'll be digging into um, 
Chappelle discourse season six um because um his recent special the closer has come out and it has caused a lot of controversy i mean i'll i'll save this spicy take for the beginning and then let that be the teaser for the end dave Chappelle kind of started this mess the media made it much worse than dave Chappelle made it and then netflix is a company made it much worse than the media and Dave Chappelle made it combined. So that, that's where I'll begin, but we're going to talk about that later on in the show because that's how you do a tease, goddammit. We're going to begin <laughs> with um, the kind of heady economic stuff right here. So basically in the summer of this year, 2021, in collaboration with Good Morning Bad News, I made this viral TikTok about an October general strike. And at the time, it was just sort of this viral concept that was going on in um, different spaces, there are young spaces online on the left. And so um, me and the um, one of the people behind Good Morning Bad News, we decided to use this as an opportunity to talk about the history of strikes and um, the American labor movement and contextualize that vis-a-vis this sort of like viral call for a general strike. And, and in that video, while I think in retrospect, it could have been made clear, we tried to make a pretty clear point saying that like, listen, you can't just like, strikes are usually the result of years of back and forth between management and union representatives and their moment of last resort, right? You can't just sort of just one day say, I don't like my working conditions, I'm going to strike and then like, be chill about your job usually, right? Um, It involves a lot of organization and there's a real aspect of the fact that worker power exists and without it, management can't really do all of that much. But that requires organization. It requires coordination and cooperation and um, a lot of things that the left has been historically good at in history, but needs to um, revisit a lot of that history, in my opinion, in order to um, get better at that and answer the needs of this current time. Um, that being said, let's just acknowledge this particular moment. In the context of the pre-COVID economy, um, the wage and productivity gap was continuing to um, widen as people were working harder and harder, but their wages were not reflecting that either in um, real terms when adjusted for inflation or in the ability of what people can buy with that amount of money. Um, basically, the idea that a 40-hour-a-week job does not get you nearly as far as um, it historically has in different time periods, but you also have um, rising wealth inequality, where America's one percent now have as much wealth as the entire middle class. To say nothing of the working poor, and so just let's stop there for a moment because this is a new statistic. The top one percent has as much wealth as the entire middle class, not just the working poor, like the bottom forty percent of Americans, like economic speaking, but the middle class. Like when they say the middle class is dying, the middle class has shrunken to such a point and the top 1% has exponentially increased in such a point that th- that statistic exists. Um, and again, this is to say nothing of the working poor, but COVID briefly redefined this essential worker thing and we briefly for a moment celebrated this idea of, okay, we have these people who are on the um, front lines of this pandemic. They are working in grocery stores. They're working in... Um, for delivery services, all these other different things, making sure that people who do have the luxuries of staying home or the ability to stay home um, can do so and still like have their things. 
at first they were celebrated and people did, you know, applause at like 7 p.m. or whatever for um, nurses and service workers and things like that. But ultimately what that led to was a, um, a kind of cheapening of this really important work. When Amazon workers attempted to go on strike with um, that one worker, I believe the name of Christian Smalls or like that larger um, effort that happened at the Alabama warehouse, that was a robustly union busted by amazon more or less um you had the but even despite that you've had an instance where alabama coal miners have been on coal miners have been on strike since april um demanding better working conditions from and uh yeah better just like treatment from their corporate overlords over at blackrock um you fast forward right now where 1400 workers at four different kellogg's plants are currently going on strike because of the working conditions, the fact they've been asked to work 16, 17, 18 hour days at the factory, and that they can't take breaks because that means someone else has to fill in there for their position, um, just pumping out the cereal. You have 10,000 workers at John Deere um, who are about, who just like authorized that company going on strike. Um, 34,000 healthcare workers at Kaiser Permanente, a major um, health provider in the United States, especially on the West Coast, um, they are just on the verge of all going on strike as well, protesting the fact that uh, Kaiser hasn't done a good job of replenishing the medical resources that they've lost over the past several years. And then this big one, 60,000 entertainment industry workers, not necessarily the actors, but the people who make everything else work, the lighting, the sound, the videos, the special effects, the sets. Um, those workers, their major union, um, IATSE, just voted to strike. That's 60,000 workers around the country. So you total that up. That's around 100,000 workers right now who are on strike. People are calling this striketober. This is an interesting moment for um, a lot of this going on. But first of all, I kind of just wanted to get people's um, on the panel's kind of thoughts and reactions to the context leading up to this moment and, you know, what, what this might mean. Like, could this be a moment in which... Um, it could be used by Democrats even to reshape the narrative around worker power, should they choose to do that, if they're even about that. Um, it always makes me happy to see uh, workers going on strikes. Um, I remember last year, no, I'm sorry, 2019, 2018, there were the big uh, teacher strikes all over the country. There was like over 100,000 teachers nationwide that went on, went on strikes. Um, and I think, you know, there was documentaries done about it and stuff. Um, and some of their demands were met, some of them weren't. But, yeah, when you see, the, the one that really struck me was uh, John Deere. Like, John Deere is, like, one of the uh, iconical, I don't know if that's a word, uh, brands, you know, in the Midwest and the South. And to see that, you know, some uh, even a place like that, the workers are, you know, they're unionized, a lot of them, but um, they, you know, took it upon themselves to demand better. You know, it, it just makes me happy to see that. Um, I do feel like, you know, it, it is an opportunity for, you know, politicians to, I feel like it's more on a local level to, like, back the constituents uh, where they are. You know, it's hard to know, like, what's happening in, you know, Iowa or, you know, Virginia when it comes to these strikes. It's hard to know because a lot of that stuff won't get, like, national press when it comes to, like, the politicians. Um, I remember when the teacher strikes were happening, 
you know, they were so big. And a lot of them were happening in Republican areas, too. Um, I was wondering, you know, I'm like, you know, is Trump going to say anything about it? It took him a while, but I remember him saying, like, oh, you got to get a deal done. And that was pretty much it. But I I thought even for him, that would have been a great opportunity to kind of, like, be on the side of the workers. Um, You know, I, I think the politicians in those areas will... You know, at least they'll have some rhetoric. But it, but like I said, it's going to be hard to know, like, what's really happening on the ground as far as, like, you know, mayors and uh, city councils and state legislatures when it comes to those strikes. But, um, you know, this country has a history of major you know, labor action and major strikes. And it also has a history of some of the worst uh, reactions to unionization and, you know, labor movements and strikes, um, you know, in the, in like the industrialized time of the United States, you know, labor unions were one of the first kind of like multiracial kind of things that were happening in the United States. And, you know, the powers that be did not want to see that. And they, you know, they, they use a lot of violence against those strikes. I don't think that'll be able to fly today, but I'm sure that there's a lot of intimidation. And and sadly, a lot of those unions have been co-opted by, you know, the people that are against workers' interests. Um, but, you know, we're, we're kind of living in unprecedented times with the pandemic, and maybe we can see something different than we have before. I Sean, think, what do you think a lot of, like, workers and stuff coming out of the pandemic, they've it's now opened uh, the eyes of a lot of people to see, oh, hey, we're not being treated fairly or we're not getting paid what we're worth and all that. Really, these people are really understanding just discrepancies between pay and what their livelihoods are and what they want to have as a life. Like you should be able to work 40 hours and have that be enough to be able to sustain your life for yourself and your family. But that's not the case. People are having to have or having to have to work two, three jobs in this country to really make ends meet. And it's just now with that kind of being put on the table, especially with the COVID relief stuff, some people weren't getting the relief, some jobs weren't doing that, people were out of work and desperate. Now they're they're trying to have that leverage to show, hey, we really need to have changes in this country for for us to be able to sustain and for us to be able to afford where we're living. That's why you're having so many people leave more expensive places in the country because they're like, we can't afford it. It's impossible. And you're getting worked to death and it's not worth it. People are realizing that they want more quality of life than to be stuck at a, a job that they hate and getting paid for a wage that that um, is basically not a living wage. And it's nice to see people finally standing up and to to see these strikes and to see all these things because it's disrupting workflows, disrupting supply chains and stuff, and it's having an effect on the economy. So that's that's one thing where when you can have that effect on, you know, corporations' money, on the overlords' money, as I like to say, if you can get that, then <clears throat> that can really get a point across. And I'm hoping that more and more people can rise up, more and more people can demand the things that should honestly be basic necessities in, in the country that should be everybody should be able to get but another thing is like the um airlines right now they're having to cancel thousands and thousands of flights because they don't have enough crews slash a lot of the crews are overworked to the point where 
like uh, I know pilots right now are completely overworked because they don't have enough pilots in general. They had to lay off a bunch of people slash force people to retire during the pandemic just to make ends meet. And now when they open everything back up, now there's a super pilot shortage um, and all these um, men and women have to get their hours back into the cockpits and stuff. And you have to, you have all these FAA minimums. And now um, with that's a perfect storm where you don't have enough people to fly. And now you have all these other workers and stuff saying, hey, we like we're overworked and they're organizing stuff to have pilot unions because pilot unions are one of the strongest things in the one of the strongest unions in the country, uh, luckily. And they're trying to go up and saying, hey, we need to have more people. We need to be able to get our arrest and whatnot, because you don't want to have an overworked crew because then that's how mistakes are made, especially in the cockpit. And that's what a lot of the media is not talking about when it comes to like the Southwest stuff and United and a couple other airlines that are having to cancel thousands of flights. The crews are hitting their maximum uh, monthly limits of flying, which doesn't happen that often. So it's crazy. You're living in unprecedented times and more people are going to have to rise up like we're seeing. Um, also, uh, Dan, I, th I feel like you obviously these strikes aren't necessarily tied to the pandemic, but I think there is, uh, I think there is a tie because um, we saw early in the pandemic, you know, this term came about essential workers. And I think in a lot of people paid attention, like you did see that some of these people that a lot of times like their jobs or what they provide does get overlooked. They, we realized that you know, as a society that these people are essential. And I have a lot of friends of mine, people I care about that work in grocery stores. And I would talk to them and it's like, yeah, if, if like things are bad, like, you know, uh, you know, late March, early April during uh, 2020 was, you know, we didn't know what the hell was going to happen. But we know that if, you know, we, we, the toilet paper is gone, the paper towels are gone, and there's like, you know, certain things are gone from the grocery store. But if they were to close the grocery stores, it would have been pandemonium. Like, they would have had to put, uh, you know, uh, National Guard in front of those windows if they shut down the grocery stores, shut down Targets, Walmarts, whatever. So, you know, talking to the friends of mine that work in these places, they talked about how early in the pandemic, a lot of the people that would shop there are like so grateful and like, you know, you guys are doing so much for us. We really appreciate it. But it didn't take till maybe like June that that attitude changed. Uh, June 2020. Because yeah, this exactly. damn thing's gone on for so long. Yeah, exactly. It's like um, it's like on the one hand, they're like, yeah, it's, it's so important that we're protesting uh, black people's rights. On the other hand, hey, I hurry up darky with my produce, damn it. Like it was just taken on to too light. It's, it's like there's no dissonance between the two. The overnight activists. Yeah. So like, you know, you, and, and uh, you know, what made me think about that was the um, the people were clapping at seven o'clock or whatever it was. Because I remember in my neighborhood, there would be like a caravan of cars that would um, drive by. Um, damn, what's the name of that song? They'd be playing this one song by Desiree. You gotta be strong. I think that's what it's called. Um, and honking their horns. And, you know, at some point, the kind of respect or the idea around that narrative of essential workers went away. And I can imagine somebody who, and, and, and also like a lot of companies were giving hazard pay. I don't know about these places that are going on strike, obviously. But, you know, at some point, you know, when you're risking your life, you know, working in a pandemic in a factory or something like that. And then when you come out of it and you see like, wow, like it, it doesn't even seem like what we did was appreciated. 
you know, it, it doesn't take much to get the people at your workplace to say, you know what, like, let's let's go make a change on our own. And, um, you know, all you can hope for is that their demands are met and that, yeah, and that also there is pressure put on these companies from political actors as well, whoever has the power in those places. Yeah, um, I... What one question I have for you all is because I think there's this prevailing sort of like idea that has been going on in the discourse recently that people would rather believe that the reason why these um, minimum wage jobs aren't being filled is less to do with a broader contextual, broader like uh, societal revolt against um these working conditions and how sort of fickle their respect in society really is and how on the one hand it's oh this is um food services these are things that are really important but um they are often their jobs are treated in a way where it's seemed as though they're not important whether it's kroger saying you're heroes we love you but also saying that um oh and to thank you you'll be able to take two of any remaining uh, 16 liter bottles of Coca-Cola of your choice or Dasani um, only while supplies last as your gift. Oh, and by the way, um, you're, we're cutting your health insurance benefits at the end of the year. Um, th things like that. Nevertheless, there are people who will argue, oh, they're just people who are making more money off of government benefits than they would be at these jobs. So once you take away those government benefits, then people will start getting back to work. And this is something that, um, this is austerity politics that Joe Biden and centrist Democrats um, took the bait for and fell into. And so a lot of these states have taken away these unemployment benefits and these um, eviction moratoriums um, are beginning to expire in a number of different places. And these jobs aren't being filled. People aren't going back to work in a lot of these places. It's still hard to get things staffed and serviced um, in a lot of different places. The supply chains are shortened to the point where um, executive orders need to be called in order to clear out the port of Los Angeles and Long Beach because so many boats are getting stranded that they're, they're dragging their anchors along the shores and hitting pipelines and causing oil to leak. Like, it, it, these are just knock-on effects of a continuingly like a uh, disastrous state of late stage capitalism. Uh, nevertheless, there's a lot of people out there who see this as the fault of lazy workers and not workers in an overworked system. And so why do you think that is? I will not answer this question, but I want you all to give your own thoughts. It's the, it, it depends where you grew up at and what your politics are, like your general view of life. I hear it a lot from people, obviously, who are more right-leaning, more Republicans or Libertarians, how they're the pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps type, and they don't tend, or, or people who are very privileged or have uh, really high-paying jobs, whatever it is. All these people don't think of what situations people are in to stay in a um a state of welfare is to stay in a place of you get your benefits so on and so forth um they think though those people are lazy a lot of times a it's to stay safe because you're in covid a lot of some some people have are super high risk they don't want to be around people necessarily so that which is understandable the other thing is <clears throat> sometimes it's it's 
um, you get more money from being on an uh, unemployment than being employed by a place that plays $12 an hour or something or whatever uh, atrocious wages they are. And those aren't living wages. Like you, at the end of the day, you got to put food on the table for your family and whatever is the most economically feasible way of doing that, people are going to do that. So if you don't pay people more, you don't pay people what they're worth of whatever it is, then they're going to do whatever um, thing they need to do to be able to live, to be able to pay rent, pay your car, pay your bills, health insurance. There's so much that goes on that people don't think or a lot of people take for granted, especially if they're in high paying jobs or they're blessed to have something that they don't have to worry about benefits or insurances or whatever it is. Um, they don't take a second to step back and look at the situations that other people are in and say, oh, wow, like you're desperate. You really need to have these things. But these low paying jobs or these, you know, unruly jobs, people that, you know, jobs that people don't necessarily want, they're not giving out the wages that people need. And until more and more people can get that understanding of why people aren't going to go back to those jobs because they're, they're like, enough is enough. I can't do that anymore then they're going to still stay stuck in that bubble and think people are lazy. No, people are desperate. People want to work. I have so many people I know that are have been looking for jobs and stuff, but they see that they don't have benefits or their wages are horrible. And they're like, I'm going to work 40 hours a week and barely make $700 every two weeks. Like that's nothing. You need to have people that work more, or have um, that can work for what wages that they deserve. And again, wages have been stagnant since the 1980s in this country. Like if you look at the <clears throat> inflation rate to um, wage growth, it's, it's terribly stagnant. So, you know, minimum wage should technically be in the 20s in, in America, if you really look at the economics of it. But, you know, these people won't say that or they're in their little bubbles of of um, try to pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality, which I think is extremely toxic at the end of the day. So we all want to work. People don't want to be lazy. People want to do stuff, but you need to pay them. Plain and simple. That's just really fast. That's I want to highlight that point. There's so many people looking for work, but they're either deterred by like a ridiculous hiring practices and processes that just like aren't compatible yes. with just, like people getting hired. Um, and B, the fact that there's this expectation that, oh, you've must have done some amount of you must have some amount of experience uh, and you probably must have gotten this experience in an unpaid sort of context. So you must be able to afford to have unpaid work and labor and things like that. Like I these are assumptions that were ridiculous even 10 years ago when it was like, oh, yeah, of course you have unpaid internships. Everyone did unpaid internships as though it was like we're still in a time in which as though we're still in a time in which um people can just afford to yeah just chill with their parents for a long amount of time while they're still doing like unpaid labor like you said um Absurd. yeah like yeah just never mind the complete devaluing of labor in that aspect of things but the, the these just before you get to your point bam the fact that these the workplace like the um environment that exists right now has so many people looking for work but isn't connecting people to those jobs is should be a failure of okay how are these hiring processes working what is actually going into those things but instead we're this is a society that is so based on i think due to a lot of the things you said about um blaming the individual and not the system the system works totally fine because some people are doing okay but they never continue that question and go okay why are only some people okay right bam what were you gonna say um yeah 
Uh, well, Dan, you said you weren't going to answer the question, but you kind of did. Um, so that's not fair because I was going to bring up the uh, politics of scarcity and capitalism and stuff. But you already talked about it. So I'll leave that alone. Uh, I, I, I didn't at all. I was just sort of like <laughs> going off of Sean. Like the, the thing about Sean's point, honestly, that was the most important is that like there's a lot of people who like we're talking about. There's a lot of people who are just like not looking for work at like the sort of like um what's traditionally called unskilled, which is so problematic in a number of different ways, or low-wage work. But this is also happening for people with, like, full-on college degrees and, like, non-liberal artsy things who are still, like, having a hard time because of this dumbass hiring practices, just even being able to get work. Yeah, for sure. Um, But, yeah, you know, we do have that, that, like, politics of scarcity in the American culture, which does affect this, too. But I was going to bring up something else. Um, like, Sean, you're talking about people, you know, figuring out their, they were making more on unemployment than they were working. A lot of those people that, you know, we're, we're speaking about these people like, oh, how come we're not filling these jobs? I think a lot of those people don't understand that some of those people that were, you know, they lost their job during the pandemic and then they were collecting unemployment benefits and, you know, a couple of stimulus checks. A lot of those people went on to start their own businesses, you know, and like do things with that money. Like they have the time to think of something that they were maybe were passionate about or things that they could like make more money than what they were making, you know, being a waiter or whatever. And they continued that. There were so many people figured out a way to make their own money during the pandemic. And now that, I mean, you know, pandemic is over in some ways they're continuing to do that and these people that are upset that you know the the jobs at target or mcdonald's aren't being filled they don't even understand that mentality and i don't know how they would even feel if somebody was to say that to them like oh yeah like you know a lot of people i knew that were getting unemployment they ended up starting their own businesses and they're still doing that like would they still be mad you know like how would they feel about that um, because we do also have a country where people kind of respect the hustle, but they also kind of want to keep certain people in a box. So I think that's one aspect of it too. And 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 I just want to say this kind of going back to the strikes. Um, I haven't seen, I don't know if you guys have seen any major strikes in this country having to do with vaccine mandates. Um you know, it's interesting that, like, in a time where, you know, we have a lot of people in media that want to talk about how authoritarian these strike mandates are, I mean, I'm sorry, these vaccine mandates are in companies, um, we're seeing strikes because of la- because of uh, labor practices by the bosses, not because of vaccine mandates by the president or, you know, the state or county authorities. And even when it came, uh, Sean, you were talking about those, um, the pilots and whatever airline that was, um, I want to say it was Southwest. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry? Southwest. Yeah, Southwest. Um, you know, they were, these people that were organizing the strike were asked, oh, is this because of vaccine mandates? They're like, no, it's because of labor practices. So, you know, that's a big deal too. I haven't seen any big strikes because of vaccine mandates. I feel like I've heard of something but nothing major like we're seeing right now. Nothing major. You know, you'll have your Tim Pools that say that all of these things are fucking vaccine ones, but they're not. They're all about labor. Like the pilot one is, 
it's one that is so misconstrued with a lot of these um, right wingers and stuff online. You know, the the YouTube right, as I like to call them. Um, they a lot of them are saying it's the vaccine mandates that these pilots are trying to go on. That's a very marginal um, population of them that are doing that. The, all of them, like ninety eight percent of them, are are doing these things because they are overworked. They are so exhausted from flying that they're like they can't keep it up and they say it's dangerous to do this slash they're hitting their they're literally hitting their maximums of flying because the faa you have all of your limits from um from flight crews of how much you're allowed to fly per month so that way you're not overworked and these people are hitting it in like three weeks which is absurd that means you're flying almost every single day which is not healthy to do and i know that a lot of the stuff because i belong to a couple of pilot stuff um, like aopa there was some articles from them that they're saying um, that flight crews were requesting more rest, requesting like to break up the schedules more to what it used to be. You, usually you would have four three-day trips and then you'd have a couple of days off to be able to readjust because a lot of people don't know or don't realize when you're flying, you have you travel, right? Example for like a normal pilot schedule, say you fly LA to Boston and then that's your first trip. Your second day you're doing Boston to New York to uh, North Carolina, back to Boston, and you stay there. You're flying so much, you're traveling so much, your your body is going through these time zones and everything, and you can't keep up with it, and you're just destroyed by the end of it. It's not an easy, it's not an easy life. And when you're overworked like that, then that's when mistakes can happen. That's when things can get um, corners can be cut. You can have issues on runways. You can have issues on landings, on takeoffs, off of different procedures. Things could get cut, and you don't want that in the airlines. It's and, dangerous. And that's a similar thing that you can see with like truck drivers. There's a parallel there where yeah. like they're they're working long hours. They're constantly moving and operating a very large like vehicle um in public space, and their mistakes due to fatigue and overwork can mean life or death for a number of people around them. Um, and, and so I, I think an interesting point you had there, Bam, especially, was that the media comes at this from such a detached way. And it's like from the top down, the fact that um, the media is so focused on these day to day, like nonsense controversies around mask mandates, because that's the thing that continues to do well for them numbers wise, negates the fact that people here are struggling and they're the the issue they're talking about is directly related to the fruits of their labor. And because the media isn't talking about that, because they're not actually providing a context for that and giving people a language to discuss that, they're doing a disservice to their audience. Mainstream media is doing a disservice to their audience by not bringing it about in this fashion. And of course, I think they're doing this on purpose because this is like the nature of mainstream media, right? It's not their... They, they are the bosses. They represent capital. They represent power, right? And so they're not going to do anything that even approaches agitation propaganda for the masses to rebel against the fact that um, the companies that they are very majorly entrenched with um, are the billion-dollar, trillion-dollar companies uh, that they, yeah, do business with, they advertise with. And so Clearly, the media is not going to help here. This is like one of those stories where obviously the media is not going to help. Um, but I do want to pause before I think about the like actual left here, because I think the what the left here can do is a really I, I think it's both clear and not clear. It's clear in the fact that what the left needs to do is 
utilize this moment, not inorganically by speaking for these workers, but by figuring out how to use the methods of political communication that the left has on social media to amplify the voices of workers um, and people on strike to make it so this message starts to permeate in mainstream media and mainstream media is forced to have to reconcile with the loud noise that we're making on the left about workers issues and highlighting these workers stories and struggles like the mainstream media loves narratives about the uh, Trump voter the former Obama Trump voter well they love a lot of narratives about the working class and what this looks like in this um, Trump Biden neoliberal hellscape but I would love to see and I open this question up to y'all is like I would love to see even liberals use this opportunity and the Democratic Party to put Republicans on offense, I'm sorry, on defense and say, okay, what are you as the Republican Party prepared to do for workers um, who are striking, um, who are workers who are unionized? What are you looking to do to help bolster unions and collective bargaining? Because if we look at the Republican Party's record in history for the past decade and decades, it's been about union busting. It's been about decreasing mm -hmm. the power of collective bargaining, collective action. And so you could either put Republicans in a corner where they now have to outplay the Democrats on um, workers' rights, which they almost certainly wouldn't do. Trump, maybe, but like Republicans almost certainly wouldn't do. Even this Trumpified Republican Party won't. Or Democrats force Republicans to show their hand and show how terrible they are in on this issue and can start to get some points back as they start to like, you know, have to have a legislative agenda to move forward. What are your thoughts? Where it's so easy, Dan. Where it's so easy. Um, From my mouth to Jen Psaki's ears, right? <laughs> exactly. My, my, like, I guess my worry is, is, depending on liberals, is which ones are, like, horribly corrupted and which ones are not. Because some people have, you know, vested interests to hold on to their money, to union bust. I mean, some of these people are paid thousands and thousands of dollars to go into these union busting things and to get um, more power to corporations, more tax base for corporations. You saw it with the damn um, stimulus packages, how much of that wealth went to corporations and people that didn't fucking need it, not to people like us and stuff who, who needed to, you know, the normal folk that really needed to get um, bailed out and stuff. But podcast hosts. Nonetheless, <laughs> what? Podcasters, right? Yeah, the, the people who are really struggling. Right, exactly. But nonetheless, um, if they actually do, if there are like the few liberals that can actually organize and go up and say, hey, like this is our time, because here's the thing with especially with Democrats, you know, the more liberals, not necessarily the left, but you could include the left in this as well. The thing is, is Joe Biden's numbers are horrendous right now. His, uh, you know, approval rate is falling by the fucking minute. It's pr pretty brutal. It's fine. I don't I don't like Joe Biden. You know, none of us really do. But, What's falling um, faster, uh, Bill Clinton's pulse or Joe Biden's approval rating? Good question, man. Who knows? Context that's, for that's Bill Clinton being hospitalized in Orange County, but never mind. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. In, in UCI, at UCI. So, you know, do 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 that info that you will. That's um, UCI. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Anyways. Can I make a point, Dan? Um, but anyways, with the falling approval rates and stuff of Biden and of the Democrats and of like Newsom's like example in California of, of Gavin Newsom and the handling of the pandemic and other things. And with all of that stuff, like going against Democrats, they have to do something 
to get their approval up for re-election. Like all of them, you know, that's their main concern, right? Is how do I get reelected? Most of them are like, it's all about money, this and that. Another thing is you can now go on the offensive against the Republicans on all of these worker rights issues and actually implement them, not like what you did in Georgia and just, you know, do it just to say and try to get um, elected and then do nothing for the fucking people of Georgia. If you actually go and do stuff for people, you do changes for wages, for workers' rights, for, you know, more unionization, for trying to get people to have benefits and stuff, especially now when you have um, so many people getting off of, of parents' health insurance stuff and whatnot, a lot of people in limbo, what do we do? If you get those things and promise it to the people and to the masses, that's how you're going to get reelected in the coming elections, in the coming years. And you have a great opportunity now with seeing how many different organizations, different people are, are going on strike. You can now say, hey, look, a lot of these things that were implemented were by Republicans, were by Republican-led you know, governors, um, city councils, whatever it is, we have the means to do change and to say, hey, look, we can get you higher wages. We can implement, you know, a higher minimum wage. We can implement more um, unions or try to get into more union organization and all of that jazz. And if they actually do that, then that would be lovely. And then that could be a thing that can get them to more, um, to get them more votes when when it comes time for re-election. I think that's one point that needs to get out to them. But then my cynical side is like, none of them care because they all make a butt ton of money and a lot of them have vested interests in, into fucking overworkers and they don't care at the end of the day. But hopefully, because they are also so centered that they realize that in order to get re-elected, they have to do something because the numbers and stuff are showing that people are, you know, distrust pretty much any politician more or less but that they really you know the past two presidents are extremely unpopular on both sides and that they have to change something or else people are going to keep to continuing to do this um you know as i was saying before like i think with these strikes it's going to be more about the the politicians that are closer to those scenes like i'm looking at the kellogg uh factory strike like it's in michigan nebraska pennsylvania and tennessee um you know i'm not expecting like you know chuck schumer or somebody or biden even like there's there's the politicians there are going to have more of a say and more to do with that issue and I'm I, like, I'm not going to lie. Like, I'm not going to be going to look at, you know, Nebraska 10 News website to see, like, what's the politician that showed up to the strike to talk about it. Um, you know, I follow Rashida Tlaib on Twitter and I see her, you know, talking about the strikes and being supportive of, of, of them and AOC and stuff. I don't know if they're on the ground anywhere, but like, I do think that it'll be more like the local politicians there that'll have an impact and we'll see you know it is a good opportunity for any for any politician to come out in support of the workers um you know if and hopefully if they do that then it's actually in their heart if politicians have hearts um but yeah it as like a broader party thing like republicans democrats like i feel like that'll be hard to say when it comes to strikes especially major strikes, even when it came to the teacher strikes, you know, we, we saw which politicians supported them and which ones were, and who were the politicians that put in place these situations for them, you know, especially in West Virginia. I can't really speak for anywhere else. I remember paying attention to that 
situation a lot. But um, yeah, I think we'll see a lot of more. We'll, we'll we'll be able to tell what's going on politically if we pay attention to the local scene. I think that's always a good kind of note of advice, um, just keeping to local politics. And I think that's a good point to segue into um, the, oh God, such a mess. The Democrats build back better sort of agenda as it's been so called. Um, as alluded to in the previous uh, segment by Sean, yeah, Biden's approval numbers not doing great because Biden started his administration on the premise and concept that basically only Joe Biden would have to have used this moment um, and his administration to prove the Democrats could do things, <laughs> to prove that the government could actually work um, for people and accomplish things. But of course, the government's always been able to work and accomplish things. It's the measure of government. It's the only the will of the people who are in charge of the government who are able to do any of those things. And actually get those things accomplished, right? So, ultimately, when the will of the Biden administration was tested, and it was tested in a number of different fronts, from the uh, John Lewis voting rights bill to try to combat a lot of the Republican efforts to make it harder to vote, that have largely been to the detriment of um, places that tend to vote blue, but have also been to the detriment of, of rural areas that tend to vote red, just making it harder to vote so that Republicans have an easier way to um, maintain the power that they already have. Um, uh, any methods for um, support for Black Lives Matter in that regard, any sort of legislation around that, Joe Biden said he would be strong for and said he wanted to see something on his desk or something by like June or July for um, police accountability reform, right? That date came and passed basically without anything. And Joe Biden was like, yeah, okay, we're not going to do it because we have other legislative priorities like the um, budget, which would probably be because of the reconciliation um, rules that make it basically difficult for Democrats to do anything effectively with their narrow majority, um, would promise a whole bevy of measures to, again, prove to people that the Democrats could do things when in power of the government. Um, nevertheless, you have senators who are more vocal, like Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin, and then cinemas who are uh, senators who are less vocal, um, who are letting Sinema and Manchin do the talking for them who stand in the way of Joe Biden's agenda and therefore the Democratic Party's agenda and therefore the Democratic Party's last chance of <laughs> making a difference before fascism reigns supreme. Um, but before I get to whether or not that was a hyperbolic statement or not, it, there was a point of like hope, let's say, where House Democrats, led by Pramila Jayapal very forcefully, um, we're able to basically say we are not going to like we'll force a delay on um, the bipartisan infrastructure bill that is meant to also go along with the budget bill. More or less saying that, hey, we're going to vote for these two at the same time because they um, corresponded together. And we've done this before where we let centrist Democrats piece apart 
our legislative agenda and they just throw it to the wayside, never talk about it again. It's a divide and conquer strategy. That's what happened with the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, all these beautifully named things that Joe Biden ultimately didn't care about. Um, so now we're at the point where Joe Biden's approval ratings at its lowest. This is the, again, we'll, we'll get to the severity of that statement that I made earlier, but um, this is really a do or die moment for Joe Biden and the Democrats to prove that they can get things done legislatively. I'll ask the question I've been asking on Power Report for about a year now, since at least August 2020. Will Democrats snatch defeat from the jaws of victory? <laughs> um, you know, honestly, like I... It, it, Joe Biden is just so uninspiring. Um, and I feel like when we're talking about like politics on that level, you know, it, it sucks, but like personality has a lot to do with it. And, you know, if you have a certain personality, even if the legislation is not there, you can kind of skate by, you know, because I feel like that's what Trump did a lot of. Um I don't, you know what, let me, let, you know, let's go to Sean. Cause I like, honestly, like I want to hear what, what you, you and I want to hear what Dan and Sean have to say and more respond to that. I don't think so because there's too many roadblocks in the way of trying to get anything passed. And you've seen that time and time and time again with the Democrats, you know, half of uh, there's the fucking giant internal war of, um, the left, of the centrists, of the corporatists, of the fucking Republican lights that are in the Democratic Party. You have all this infighting and stuff as well that is hindering um, some of Biden's agenda. And then the other stuff is you have the voices of Manchin and Cinema that are really taking the headlines and stuff and taking precedent of the moment of what the bill is. And the other thing, too, is you have a lot of the mainstream media going on the side of Mansion Cinema and making these beautiful articles and stuff and saying, hey, look, these these people are great. They aren't playing by the rules or this or that one. They're they're hindering what the Democrats want to do, what a majority of them want to do. And when it comes to that point, I just don't see it happening. I mean, you didn't have that much happen when Obama was president and you had control then as well. Like you had the disaster of the um obamacare where it's basically republican bill more or less um and you could see that time and time again with them and you had nafta in the 90s and a bunch of other things that were done under democratic control ever since you know the line shifted more towards the right and meeting in the aisle meeting in the middle ever since you had that it's just been a disaster in this country a time and time again and now you're having like the one good thing is now you're having a little bit more uh, left voices within the Democratic Party, but they still get washed out by more corporate leaning, the more corporatists in the party, and those have such a big voice in the media in whatever they're trying to get in to um, national headlines and to get towards more um, normal folk who don't really pay attention to politics. They'll see more of those headlining people and they'll make the discourse bad towards the agenda. So I just, I don't know. I can't see it happening. I mean, my response to that to some extent is like, I agree and disagree. So like, I, I think. Dan and I disagree for once. Would you look at that? There <laughs> well, you go, like, audio face listeners. <laughs> I, I, I think that um, the, 
to, to the point that we disagree, I think there's a certain point where like this defeatist narrative of the um, powers that be having uh, control of the media can be something that conditions us as like, a, OK, this is a basic sort of understanding of how politics works. Um, and so we sort of operate in it. And to an extent, that's true. But part of what I think is so amazing about this, like, striketober moment is, yeah, like, yes, it's the result of a lot of different um, individual conflicts that have been happening that are all sort of coalescing at once. But that's not the only thing in the like that's cooking in the bowl there. Right. Like there's an overarching sentiment that wait, we are working harder and harder and harder and being grinded to the bone. And we're asking for bare minimum things. We're not even getting those. We're getting like laughed at and saying, oh no, that's too much. How dare you ask for even that much when it's just like um, <laughs> maternity care, like maternity leave and paternity leave, um, like health insurance benefits, like time off, the ability to recuperate and recharge from your job so you don't like go like too wild off of it, right? Um, these are things that in a lot of workplaces are just being fought for at bare minimums, let alone like um, pay, like um, just to match pay increases with the price of inflation, with the cost of just different goods and things like that that are happening. Um, I think with the, the fact that more people are, like people, mainstream media has its influence with the politicians but it doesn't have its influence with the regular people i think the regular people the few measures of powers that they have are rebelling against that but i think that's why i'm trying to move the conversation and push it more towards okay what can independent media do with its influence like this like relegated left like we can all get together when it comes to um discourse over whether a what a comedian or an entertainer said was good or bad or not right we can all very much uh get get together on that but when it comes to building power and fighting against powers that be how can we use this ability that we have on the internet to like i'm thinking amplify voices of people on strike to then um get past the mainstream media narratives and get towards those centrists who on like a human level in a way that they aren't being communicated to because they're being talked to on by, by suits every single night who are news reading as opposed to people's regular experiences um, again and i understand that's like my optimistic like hope of what could happen but i think there needs to be more of like okay what is left media doing to highlight these voices to help amplify um voices like this so that it becomes harder for politicians to um ignore it just because it, the pramila jayapal stuff didn't happen overnight like her power didn't happen overnight like the power of the progressive like making the progressive caucus actually progressive again didn't happen overnight that's because the progressive caucus went from having oh it's just an afterthought it's just something we can put by the side of our names so that we can make constituents happy to oh no this has teeth these are progressives who will hold up like the um muckings of government to make sure that they get what they want for their constituents this is actually people to listen to i think it's time for leftist media to um re-grab the reins of that horse a little bit as well. I guess, I mean, you can kind of see it already with, like, um, showing people the true nature of, like, your Joe Manson's, your Christian cinemas, because now you can see all these people, like, in Arizona, rallying and contacting people to say, hey, we want to, we don't like her. Like, we want to do something about it because we're seeing just how corrupt she is and all of that, which is one good thing that 
independent media has been doing because you see all the mainstream media is trying to portray her as one thing and then all the the um independent media sources are showing you know her true colors showing all of her stuff and now you're seeing people approach her in the streets approach her in fucking bathrooms and approach her and all these things and that's i guess that's one good thing um that is coming of it and that is boosting dan's dan's optimism um of that so um the more and more we talk about it the more it gets to people's ears and the more that you could do i mean that's part of the reason why we have this podcast is to get it to more and more people just so that they can understand and see what they could do to help with change to help with trying to get things to normal people that we should have already had but this is america so it takes 100 years before anything relatively good happens ever so dan what is the thing like your optimism is fueled by what exactly Uh, to be clear it's the idea that I, i my optimism is fueled by the fact that when at least in my political observation when you've been able to tie economic conditions to political circumstances the closest um a la occupy wall street a la the immediate aftermath like march april of covid19 um you can actually those are moments in time very quick moments in time where you can affect a lot of political opinion on the relationship between wealth and power and inequality and that can actually stick with people and stay with people for a while right so i'm looking for ways in which you know there were podcast hosts sitting in a similar stature to me talking about ways and speaking in a very naive like manner might i add um talking about ways that they could use their podcast platforms to sing the um praises of a certain three worded political strategy that's doomed to fail right um i'm on the other hand looking okay how can we use our platforms like for example i was motivated by seeing on um the majority report with sam cedar and emma viglin on the other day where they had um a member of iotsi and another member i want to say either of kellogg or the john deere union um or like the union represented by them uh speaking together and talking about their own situations and um the iotsi um member was non-binary and the other guy was just a white dude from pennsylvania and they were talking together and like it it didn't get into gender politics it didn't get into any of that they were just like they're talking as workers about how they need to utilize worker power to get better living tangible conditions for themselves and their families and that was a good moment to have on like leftist media and i think like I'm going to try to like talk to other like I think with all of our podcasts and all of our platforms and things like that, this is a great opportunity to connect these things together and say we can have people on all different sides of the leftist coalition, um, people of color, people of all across the gender spectrum, people all across like the mental health spectrum, all those other different things together um, and we, we can start to let the make the rubber hit the road when it comes to some of these worker power issues and ultimately putting some fire under the asses of um 
the corporate powers that be that we're constantly railing against, that we've constantly conditioned ourselves to believe that um, it is impossible to counteract their power. To succinctly answer your question, Bam. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, and honestly, like, thinking about that aspect, and I think we did end up talking about when we were talking about strikes, um, you know, one of the things that our elected representatives can do, because it's hard for, uh, you know, platforms like ours or even much bigger than ours to reach out to and get a response from those CEOs, you know, the people that are putting those Kellogg worker, the workers and those John Deere workers in the position that they're in. Something that we could also do is, hey, like, you know, we're just doing this little podcast, but you're like the mayor or you're the governor. Why don't you get in contact with this person that all these people are striking over and, and see what's the deal? You know, if that person won't speak to media, which they usually don't, we don't usually hear from these uh, powerful people that are making slaves out of the workers. You know, it'll be a great thing if we can get those, like that person's voice to say, yeah, um, you know, this is the reason why I have these hours and, you know, make them say it out loud so everybody can know what kind of terrible person they are. So then it's really hard for anyone to have their back. With the Amazon stuff, like we 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 don't know who's making those rules. We We think that it's Jeff Bezos, you know, <laughs> like it's not him. There's somebody else underneath him that is like making those rules. And we need to hear from that person too. And, and, you know, that might be a good, uh, you know, a good thing for the, our elected representatives to do, Republican, Democrat, or otherwise. Like, hey, man, like, why don't you use your platform? Like, you're somebody with some influence and some power. We need to hear from this CEO or this manager of this building over here. Can you get in contact with them? Because we got a bunch of people out in the street striking, and we don't want them just yelling into the air. We also want to know, what's this person's side of the story? Yeah, I think that's really fair. And I, I that's the thing is that like po no leftist podcast is really going to be able to talk to like CEOs. They're, most of the time they do better vetting than that at this point. Um, mm -hmm. What I'm really talking about is the left needs to amplify voices. What I don't want are for a bunch of um, know nothing podcast hosts who haven't walked a picket line or are like very far they're much closer to the educational elite class than they are the working class of like actually having to like work with your hands and like accomplish a task for eight or nine hours a day i don't want that podcast class of people to which i'm more closely aligned with than not to start to speak up for workers right rather yeah. i want people like in that podcast class i'm including myself in to reach out to those workers and have them on our shows because they usually wouldn't have that kind of platform. And then, yeah. like, th that's, like, at least what shows like ours can do. What shows with, like, bigger audiences that aren't necessarily leftist, what those can be pressured to do, um, your Media Sons, your Chris Hayes's, um, those who might be, like, with bigger platforms who are more um, amenable to the far left on mainstream media, um, they need to be pressured to ask those larger politicians, those CEOs, the heavier hitters, so to speak, questions that are more attuned to what we're asking on the bottom feeding left, so to speak, in this in this meteor hierarchy that we're talking about here. Um, but yeah, I, I think there's it, this is an opportunity, um, not just in the strike context, but in the 
leftist context as I kind of like wind down this like Democrat segment to really think about what how we can really utilize this moment for our utilize these moments for our advantage. And like to some extent, I think these are working. So like the Associated Press and Reuters uh, and the New York Times are now contextualizing articles um, about Joe Manchin by noting very early on, not burying it in paragraph two or three, that at the same time that Joe Manchin is blocking all of the climate policies and the climate legislation from within um, this uh, Build Back Better policy, that he's taking a lot of money from coal companies and oil companies and magnates. And he's like their biggest uh, floozy, essentially, in the Senate. <laughs> so like the the fact that the fact these mainstream outlets are now put in the position where they're forced to say Joe Manchin, who is deep in the pockets of big coal and big gas, is currently blocking Joe Biden's the, the most climate facing parts of Joe Biden's bill is something to be said. Because 10 years ago, if mentioned at all, yeah, that would be like paragraph eight of like uh, the Washington Post, the New York Times um, article on that. Only if you got someone who was kind of left leaning in that article. Um but like a- another recent thing I want to point out is the um, a joint poll by Vox and Data for Pog- Progress that shows that a majority of voters support raising taxes on the wealthy and large corporations to pay for the Build Back Better plan, regardless of what centrist Democrats are saying. Um, according to a poll that was taken in mid-October, ma- um, Majority of Americans either somewhat support or strongly support increasing capital gains taxes on the wealthy, limiting deductions for wealthy business owners, increasing taxes on large corporations, increased IRS funding so you can do better um, policing on tax dodging by these um, really wealthy uh, institutions, and raising income taxes on the wealthiest 2%. Um, we can argue, especially on the income taxes thing, how effective all these things will be, especially because the wealthy do use um, ways to get their wealth that are outside of normal realms of income, as we've learned, um, or the normal ways that the government defines income. But the thing I alluded to was that this is the last chance, the final chance for Democrats to avoid a, a true veritable hell, which is that... Um, this is something that Ezra Klein, the New York Times, and um, David Shore, who's also been like talked about in political circles, um, have made a note about. And I tend to believe them because, I mean, at least Ezra Klein, I have a lot of qualms with his like overall politics and how slowly he is to realize things that leftists have been talking about all along. But he was the one sounding the alarm, one of the people sounding the alarm the most on the fact that, okay, maybe Democrats win. Okay, maybe Georgia goes really well. You're going to end up with this point where Kristen Sinema and Joe Manchin are basically uh, filibustering everything. And you're going to have this awkward question of, do we get rid of the filibuster? And Joe Biden's not going to do it. So we're going to end up in the same place where we were even during the Trump administration, at least legislatively speaking. And la-di-da, here we are. So, I mean, uh, a broken wonk is right twice a day, right? So they're basically arguing, David Shore and Ezra Klein, that um, based on very slim, like, Either in 2022 or 2024, no matter how you slice it, it is such an uphill battle for Democrats to retain control in the Senate that it's essentially impossible that they're either going to stay at this gridlocked, you know, filibuster jamboree here, or they're going to lose power to the Republicans because that's institutionally how the Senate is built and the way the Senate is going. And that's going to lead to 
you know, uh, at least impending, likely impending disaster, um, at least for Democrats' legislative priorities, which includes climate, includes um, health care, includes any number of things that will stave off the crumbling of American empire that is currently happening. And let me be clear about that. It's not going to stave off the crumbling of American empire, but it's going to make it so... Um, you know, coming generations, people of color, uh, marginalized groups aren't completely roasted by the upcoming hell that is going to be whatever um, neo-fascist Republicans come up with in 2024. It's, that is to say that this is the moment right now, which is what I've been saying for a year. This is the moment right now that Democrats have to do something. And so if Joe Biden's still all, oh, I don't know, there's the filibuster and let's make a deal. Let's water down. And, you know, we got an agreement at the end of the day. We fought hard. The people saw that we fought hard and we got something that no one's happy with, even though that defeats the purpose of me trying to prove that Democrats can do something with government. That's going to be fine. No, if the Democrats don't deliver here and they don't deliver big. And even if they do deliver big, they're not going to see power in the Senate for a very long time, it's looking like. The only way they can avert that is by actually delivering for the American people and basically beating every likelihood that is about to happen to them in Congress by actually creating a policy that works for people. And yet Joe Biden and Kristen Sinema and Joe Manchin seem to be working together at different sides of play here to make it harder. Um, I don't know. Do you have any like thoughts on that doom scenario that I have? <laughs> I mean, it sounds, it's what I said like 40 minutes ago. So I agree wholeheartedly with the doom scenario because I have no trust in Democrats. But because you saw it, you saw it earlier, like you saw it, what, 10 years ago when the Affordable Care Act was passed? You kind of saw that mess and how. We went from public and, option. We went from public yeah. option where, like, oh, in addition to all the private health care plans, would be a public option that we could yeah. get. All the way down to, oh, well, if you like your doctor, you can eat shit. <laughs> Basically, yeah. So where it's, I think, more or less, it's what Mitt Romney wanted to be for his health care. So you saw, like, you, you've seen all of this watered-down-ness of what's happened when Democrats have control and they let these corporate interests and stuff take center uh, center stage and whatnot. So... You just have to keep getting aware. You have to keep giving awareness to people, so that way we can get these people out. We can get people to like harass people in the streets and stuff if need be. Of hey, you're not doing what is good for the people. You're doing what's good for your own self interest because you want a new fucking car or some shit, and it's not sustainable. It's this is no way it's sustainable. Like you, the, the American public hasn't been this divided. This you know distrusting of politics really since maybe vietnam or eras like that where it's just it's crazy where you see the disapproval ratings of biden um is pretty close to trump's um disapproval um in his first 300 days or whatever it is now and yeah if they don't if the democrats don't do something they're not going to be in power for much longer yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, I feel like the thing that divides the country is a little, is, is more than politics. But, sure. uh, um, but I think, uh, Dan, going back to what you were saying about, this is, this is uh, my being, reaching for some optimism here. 
and not wanting to be convoluted, but um, the what you talked about in the New York Times and I think you mentioned AP and maybe it was Reuters, how I, at this point in time, which is totally different from, you know, 10 years ago, where they're putting uh, in, in the front, in the beginning of the article, the facts about Joe Manchin, you know, maybe we are seeing a shift because I, I don't know why they're doing that. You know, I don't know, like, what pressure these people have felt to want to, you know, say that truth in the beginning of their articles. But maybe we are seeing a shift towards a more progressive politics in the American culture. Um, like, maybe that's evidence of that. Um, because I do just feel, you know, personally, I just feel a lot of these things that we want to see politically you know, boil down to what the actual population of Americans want to see. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that just vote against anything that has anything to do with somebody who may call themselves a Democrat. You know, you could, they're going to give you $100, but this guy says he's a socialist. They're like, no, I don't want it. You know, so, you know, I, I think a lot of it has to do with the culture shift. Um, but as it as it portends to, you know, someone like Biden or Manchin Cinema or anybody kind of in that, you know, establishment, Democrat or Republican, I don't I don't I don't think I never think those people have my interests in mind, regardless of what they say. So but, you know, I I, I am somewhat optimistic based on what Dan said. So, Dan, if I'm being wrong or being optimistic, it's your fault. Uh, I will always take the blame for someone being too optimistic, I guess, because that's very rarely my position. Dave Chappelle, Lisa Special. It is out. It's called The Closer on Netflix. And unfortunately, when David releases a special, it becomes political discourse. Um, and I really like in the in the group chat for Power Report. I was like, un unfortunately, like for clickbait reasons, essentially, we have we should probably do the Dave Chappelle thing. But like, there's important there's important discourse around it, but I think there's a lot of unimportant discourse around it. I almost want to reset the discourse around it because so much of the discourse has been warped. There's like Dave Chappelle's idea of the way things are happening, which is very very wrong. There's the media's reaction to the special, which is very, very wrong to the point where it's like most of the people writing these articles clearly did not watch the special just like flat out. Not in a way of agreeing with Dave Chappelle, but just in the fact of like the facts of this article are wrong. Um, down to the reaction of um, LGBTQ individuals, especially people in the trans community who were like rightfully upset about it. And I'm not going to say like they're response about that was right or wrong necessarily because i'm not part of that community but like um because of the media not doing a great job of covering it i think there's a large disservice done there as well and then you have netflix as a company which thought listen okay we've got this we're gonna handle this we're gonna back our guy dave Chappelle. we're gonna make sure our um people internally aren't too upset about this even though we ended up suspending one um, employee who talked out about it and then fired another employee who talked out about it. Um, 
We're going to stand by our man. We're not going to take down the special. We're going to hold the line because we care about the freedom of expression of everyone at our um, multi-billion dollar company. And so uh, to, I think for transparency, I've seen the full special. Bam, have you seen the full special, Sean, of you? Yeah, I saw it. Yeah, and, and if, even if you haven't, that's totally fine. But I think like there's a difference between the perspectives of the people who haven't watched this, the special and the people who have. Um, but my top level reaction of just the Dave Chappelle aspect of it was that, um, yeah, the entire special was cringy as hell. Like, um, it's less of, it's more of Dave Chappelle. It's a reflection of Dave Chappelle not spending time around the people he probably spent more time around. He was just coming up in comedy, which is just like, you know, regular ass working class people. Um, but now he spent, he spent the pandemic mostly around joe rogan bill burr a bunch of other uh male gen x comedians who feel that from their ivory tower they are not allowed to say what they think <laughs> and and so like that informs a lot of his comedy and that informs a lot of the victimization complex that he is dave Chappelle feels that um he is restricted in a lot of ways between what he can say and what he can't say even though he purposely like chooses to push buttons on certain things and will like die on ridiculous hills more or less for the point of um, just doing so. Like in a lot of times, the special he says like he's going to be a controversial comedian just for the hell of it because he's going to be and it's never going to change. But like if that that sort of shows like a weakness of comedy to me, like if you're not going to change for the times and understand that audiences maybe listen to some of the shit you say in your specials and maybe learn and grow from some of the shit they say in your specials and changes people if you believe that people are capable of changing um in your specials based on for things you said in previous specials and you also have to understand that uh comedy audiences change and you can still make them laugh and you can still make them laugh by being raunchy as hell but you have to do it in a way that is um more reflective of modern times right and so that's like kind of my beginning reaction to it um i have more reactions about like the layers of discourse re around it kind of as i like laid out in the beginning but um what did y'all think about the 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 dave Chappelle's special to begin with and then to the extent that you want to go to around the reaction to it because i think there's there, there's levels to the shit as they say um you know honestly i didn't really uh look at too much reaction to it um but I'll say this. Um, Dave Chappelle's washed. He's not funny anymore. I think he could be funny, maybe, at some point. Um, but I watched that special not knowing anything. And, like, I got to start off with Dave Chappelle, like, coming out to defend the baby. Like... What are we like? That's like his only pop culture reference is like this dude that I like. He doesn't know anything about this guy. Um, yeah, I just felt like he just lost it and like like lost his skills, writing talent. Um, Dan, I do feel like the I, I felt the exact same way as you. Like he just seems like he's out of touch. Like he got too much money and now he's out of touch. Um, I remember watching Dave Chappelle's, I want to say it was his first special, but it might not have been his first, but it was like 1999, and I, hilarious. Like, he's really funny. He's a great comedic uh, writer, but 
now it just seems like it's over for him. Um, and when he's, you know, all the things he's talking about in his special, you know, sometimes you're looking at a comedian and you know, like, they're just trying to be funny. You know, this is somebody who's just, who's simply a comedian. Um, so some of the things that they might say that are, that would be deemed offensive, you don't really take it that serious. But I think Dave Chappelle over the years has tried to fashion himself as a voice of the people and a voice that's, you know, someone who cares about what's going on in the world after his, um, you know, after his special, I guess you want to say about George Floyd, um, which if I'm not, I, I can't remember the name, if it was actually titled the amount of time that it took for George Floyd yeah. to pass. Yeah. 836 or whatever it was. Um, you know, that was really serious. And he wanted to present himself in that light. So then, you know, if you're doing that, I feel like you have, like, either you're going to make a clear distinction, like, hey, guys, this special, I'm just telling jokes. Or we're going to take what you're saying as, like, this is what you actually feel. Um, the last thing I'll say is that, you know, in regards to the special itself and what he had to say about the LGBTQ community, if anybody's listening to it, it's it's really weird that the way he talks about when he's talking about gay people, he makes it seem like they're all white. And it's that like it's like blowing my mind listening to it. I'm like, why is he characterizing gay people as white? It, it just doesn't make any sense, especially for a black person who, for the most part, the first gay people you're going to be introduced to in your life are like your family members who are most likely black. Like I knew gay people in my family before I knew like any like white gay person, you know? So it was just, and, and, and I feel like, you know, that might not have been something people picked up on as much. I, and maybe it was cause I just didn't read any of the reactions to it or listen to anything, but that stood out to me. Why is he acting like all the gay people are white and that's his conflict is that they're white. They don't understand me, but they're gay and they're attacking me. Very weird. Yeah. Like I want to get your thoughts on like the whole special at large, Sean, but just like there's this one point specifically where like Dave Chappelle is framing it as though um, white people change the rules uh, on like racism and things and oppression with um, like, the idea of the transgender expression and experience, right? But it, it, yeah, and a lot of the criticism, it erased the idea that inherently, like, you have a lot of very, very prominent Black trans people, <laughs> like, in the media, especially, like, in your class, Dave Chappelle, like, they, they can sit at your table if you want, if you want them to, if they're allowed to, Dave Chappelle, right? Um, and this special seems to, like, intentionally or not just completely invisibilize that experience crazy yeah sean you can go ahead um like just your overall thoughts with the special sean loved it uh, i've never actually <laughs> chappelle is finest i've never already been a big fan of chappelle's comedy in general like even on the Ch dave chappelle's show i thought it was okay but it was never like my cup of tea i guess uh, cut his mic off Bam, bam, big Hayden. I, I have opinions, man. Well, I, 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 I don't know how deep y'all are ready to go in, but there's like a whole different like context to that. But I was like, 
because like <laughs> Sean, we go back. There are a lot of people like at our middle school who would like play Chappelle show clips on their iPod on their busted ass iPod touches um, <laughs> over the day. And like our school was a uh, very not black and very much quite white. And so there are a lot of like a lot of the people who are fans of the Chappelle show were like white kids who like oh, saw this as their man. like their view into black culture. So like, why wasn't that it for you? I don't know. It just it just wasn't. I don't I don't know. Maybe because I like the Boondocks too much. So. I don't know. It's never been. I don't. Never been my cup of tea. But I didn't think there's teams. (laughs) As Meek Mill says, there's levels to the shit. Um, But going into like the actual special, special, I didn't think it was anything special. Like, no pun intended. But it's like it felt really forced, and it felt like Dave Chappelle was just ranting about the ramblings of his inner brain the entire time. It just felt like one of those scenes where you just have a dude complaining 24-7. You're like, okay, that's not really comedy, my guy, but okay, it is what it is. And then when he did the whole thing of, um, uh, shit, I can't think of the acronym, but the one that J.K. Rowling is, where you're like the- Turf. Uh, turf. turf. There turf. That's I'm how I started turf. the show. Yeah. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> okay that's super random i don't know why you gotta announce that to everybody but all right cool that just sets everything off on the wrong foot so it's just it's the thing of somebody who's like dan alluded to earlier of someone who's been in a bubble so long now where they're they're not in reality they're not where they used to be because the comedy is totally different now than it was you know 10 12 years ago or so when you had the Chappelle show and stuff and now you can tell. I mean, you have this a lot with other comedians as well. When they get to these circles of power and stuff, and they all just hang around other very wealthy people and in their own circles, they start losing touch with the comedy that got them there in the first place. The comedy of, oh, hey, you know, you could relate to the jokes as a working class person or this or that or stuff of racial stuff or home life things, you know, whatever it is. But then when you get to that point of then you're just ranting about random shit, then it's not it's not really funny to me. And then the whole you're also defending the baby like, come on, come on, my guy. No, just wash out of your face three times and you'll know where you'll know where to get your news from. And then also the other aspect, too, is I think some people take it way like take comedy way too seriously at face value. I think it's dangerous to do that necessarily. Like, obviously, there's tasteful and distasteful things within comedy, and there's the fine line. You always tell the line. That's the point of comedy. Like, you could say wild stuff, raunchy stuff all the time, but then there's always this line that some people cross, some people don't cross. But then when you cross it, it's one thing to do and double down on it, you know, triple down on it, whatever it is. Um, and there's another thing to, you know, you could go up and say, hey, you know, maybe that was a distasteful joke or something. I won't say it again. All right, fine. No biggie. But then there's the other thing, too, where I think people take some of those over-the-line jokes at face value and take it, like, way too overboard at times. Um, sometimes, they're like, it's, like, it's warranted. Like, sure, you could go ahead because some things could be dangerous, naturally. But there's other times where I'm like, okay, you don't need to. It's just a shitty special. Who cares? There's way other things. There's way more important things going on in the country and in your local area that need to be talked about other than that. But it's pop culture, so. Yeah, I have, it, gets, it gets attention. I have a couple of thoughts on that. Like, on the one hand, like I am sympathetic to the idea that these things do matter in the sense that, um, unfortunately, like Dave Chappelle will speak to a certain kind of audience that will have like a certain level of ignorance, and then people will 
go like hang up Dave Chappelle's specialist ideas. Look, this is a person who cares about trans people, but doesn't in his own way. And I, I, I like that kind of way. But in reality, it's like, um, you know, hateful in a lot of ways. Um, like you said, like Dave Chappelle calls himself a feminist in one breath and says he's a trans exclusionary feminist in the, ne- in the next breath. Um, and so like these are just like things that perpetuate violence against trans people, which is very much an issue that is happening today. So like I, I can get the connection between like what exists in pop culture and what tangibly affects people's lives, maybe a little bit more acutely than a lot of other people do. Not an attack on anyone here, but like I, I understand that that's a point on discourse here. Right. Um, but to the point of comedy, like, and this gets into like my annoyance with how the media cover this, like more broadly, is that yeah, the context of comedy is that you're going to be operating in a space where you're saying things that are shocking or controversial because if you were saying things that were within the realms of like, you know, safety and complete bounds of reason, then you'd be like a politician or a lawyer, right? And that's just, that's different from comedy inherently. So um, comedians need that space. On the other hand, what I think isn't talked about is on the comedian side is, yeah, a lot of times you have to cross the line, but a lot of times you have to pay the toll. And like every line has a different toll. Like, and like, some people have enough in their bank account to be able to cross some little tolls every now and again, right? If you're the kind of person who, and I made this example on AudioFace, um, Michael Brooks had a couple of dollars in his like toll account to be able to do the um, right-wing Nelson Mandela or the um, Nation of Islam Obama vocal impersonations uh, as a white dude because the rest Hilarious. of his... Because the rest of... Because A, those jokes and those impersonations had a point the point being that like um white people are fear-mongering about obama being a radical islamic person he absolutely isn't but what if he was or like the same thing around nelson mandela it was that was the humor of it the fact that he was caricature he was a white person characterizing what other people were characterizing obama to be not ascribing that onto obama and secondly Michael Brooks's entire political work and project was around um, elevating the voices of marginalized groups, speaking to their struggles and talking about those conditions in a like a breadth and context that um, a lot of other people didn't bother to go into. So when certain people go into that room and like make those kinds of jokes and do those kinds of impressions, if you understand the person like, okay, outside of this room, I'm doing a lot of work to fight these kinds of oppressions and things like that. That's different versus Dave Chappelle, who tried to balance, yeah, I do a bunch of these transphobic jokes, but um, I had a trans friend who uh, took her own life and I started a trust fund for her daughter and I'm going to continue to misgender <laughs> um, her mom for the rest, for, for like the point of a comedy special, essentially, right? Like, it's this mixed sort of, oh, yeah, well, I'm doing something too, but it's very minuscule in my own way in the context of me doing this other realm of harm, right? That there's so much to criticize Dave Chappelle on, like logically, and you can break down the arguments. But nevertheless, the media went with this argument that Dave Chappelle himself is transphobic, which I also don't agree. I think he's going too far with jokes. He doesn't have any right or responsibility to go far into. And I think that a lot of his behaviors can be used by people on the right for nefarious reasons to justify like transphobic behavior. But 
I mean, again, even though it's like this, I have one trans friend story on a human level. I have a difficult time believing that like Dave Chappelle hated like his transgender friend or like hates just like random transgender people here or there, like on a like a personal like meeting people level. And I think to be able to separate those two in your head as a someone who was doing online discourse means that you're going to take that step off of online outrage culture and into a space where you can actually start talking to regular people who will have problematic ass beliefs, but ultimately you're trying to work with the goal of getting them on your side politically and saying, hey, let's work on these problematic ass beliefs now later. Right now, we need you to walk the picket line with me. And later, we're going to talk about, hey, we walk the picket line together. I'm bi or like I'm trans or whatever, right? And so like we can still be friends and understand this life and have this different experience together. And you can actually open your eyes up to like a different like regular experience, right? That is something that people need to kind of get out of this instant cancellation culture kind of thing and think more critically about, which unfortunately was an aspect of Dave Chappelle's special, but because Dave Chappelle is a shitty messenger and the media is primed to not take in these messages with any amount of nuance anyways, it's completely lost within the special unless you actually watch that minute and a half portion in which this like actual um, semi-Marxist analysis of like class struggle and power in relation to like gender politics and racial politics actually exists within Dave Chappelle's special. But again, Dave Chappelle doesn't articulate it. And I don't believe based on everything else he has done in his career up to this point that he means it in the best of faith. Goddamn, that's a fucking analysis right there. <laughs> well, I mean, I just feel like, I mean, look, I, I've been watching Dave Chappelle for forever. Um, and I've always thought he's funny. Um, and, and even like the past couple specials I've seen on Netflix, like, I think they got progressively worse, but like, they, they were still funny. And there were some funny moments in this special too. Like there was the part where he talked about the person that is, um, that is, a female to male trans person that comes to the urinal and he's like making the joke about their, how they bent over to pee. And he's like, well, maybe they're a veteran. Thank you for your service. Like that, that's funny. You know, you're still making a joke about a trans person, but it's like, you're not being offensive on purpose. And I felt like a lot of the special was him trying to be offensive on purpose. Also the story about the trans friend he has, I don't know if that story is real. I'm going to assume it's not. <laughs> it, it, that, no, that one, like her, the family foundation, like kind of came out about it. Like the one at the end where she's talked, where he, where Dave Chappelle is talking mm -hmm. about, um, uh, not to like spoil the thing, but like his friend who was a transgender comedian, essentially, um, mm -hmm. like that, no, that, that is sort of a real thing. And then the, the, I'm, I don't care about spoiling this part, but like the dichotomy is that in the end, Dave Chappelle tries to say that, listen, I can't connect these pieces together, but I released a special. This trans woman stood up for me and saying he's not transphobic. He's like talking about these things in this way, but like I am a trans like person and Dave Chappelle supported me. And then she got a lot of heat online and then very shortly after took her own life. And Dave Chappelle draws a parallel between that same vitriol of cancel culture that is coming towards him and applies that towards other people. But like, what do people expect from social media? Like, what do people expect, dude? Like, it's full of trolls. That's what it is. Are you expecting you're going to go on Twitter and everybody's just going to applaud you? Like, I'm not, I'm not talking about this trans person. Like, I'm talking about Dave Chappelle. Like, 
the the idea of cancel culture, we're talking about social media. People are shit posting the entire time, dude. We all do that. Like, I don't know, like this, this, this concept that like if I did something in good faith, I'm supposed to go on social media and people are supposed to celebrate me. You do something in good faith, you're gonna go on social media and people are gonna talk shit about your shoes. Like that's what it is, dude. Like, what are we talking about? Like Dave Chappelle's talking about some like oh this entity of people that like bullied my friend, dude. It's social media, man. Like let's like celebrities or whoever. Like you gotta stop, dude. Like it's full of trolls. If you wanna if you wanna talk about something you did in good faith and be celebrated, go talk to your friends. Don't don't think you're going to go on Twitter or Instagram and everybody's just going to celebrate you. It's a hateful place, man. And even Dave Chappelle, like, with the cancel culture thing, it's like, dude, like, I, one, I don't want to hear him talking about being canceled or somebody trying to, I mean, you mentioned that, the ivory tower, like, dude, stop it. Like, nobody's shutting you down. You're getting eight figures for this special that you put, like, very little effort into. And And whatever, you earned that. Like, he's done his thing over the years. Like, he's been a great comedian for a long time and he's going to get numbers. Um, and honestly, I feel like he just does the trans, the trans stuff now just to get numbers or to get attention. But, you know, there's, there's a part of it. It's like, it seems disingenuous. Like you're putting yourself like, like Dave Chappelle doesn't have the same problems that like me and you have Dan being a black person. Like you don't have those same problems. Like, you're not, and 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 even the way that he did used to speak to that, like he doesn't anymore. It doesn't feel genuine when he tries to do that now, to me anyway. And as far as him being transphobic or not, like I don't know him. Like I don't know if he is or not. I'm not watching the special to figure out if he's transphobic or not because I can recognize that there are jokes, and like, you know, it's comedy. So yeah, you're gonna push the line. So I can't say whether he is transphobic or not as a person, but from like the art standpoint, I feel like he's just doing it just to get a reaction and it seems cheap. And I feel like he's better than that. And and, and like the fact that he can see it, oh, I'm just doing it as a reaction and that's all there is to it, to me is I think a form of transphobia. To think that, oh, mm. my actions just doing this has no repercussions. Me as a celebrity speaking in this flippant way about an entire group doesn't inform a certain segment of the population's ignorant reactions about that group. I I'll say like my, my last point, like my last point around this is that Dave Chappelle has the Bill Maher problem where like mm. he, he thinks of himself as this like really edgy comedian because his brand has been, no, I've always been the politically incorrect truth teller and people have always had problems with what I say, but you know what? I ignore the haters. I do my own thing and people like me. And that works for a certain period of time, but then culture changes as a result of what you're doing to that. And then that culture starts to make up its own damn mind about those things too. And if you don't keep up with it, like Bill Maher or Dave Chappelle, you end up preaching to a tinier and tinier and tinier and tinier circle of people until you look at Dave Chappelle's audience. There aren't young people in that audience. There's like people who are Dave Chappelle's age who grew up watching the Chappelle show. They're like late Gen Xers, late millennials who like believe that same like retrograde stuff because that's the culture they grew in. And they too refuse to change around the culture around them. And so they 
listen, the internet exists. Like there's a bunch of different small community or like niche communities that you've never heard of that actually have massive audiences that people can make lots of money off of. And like, that's the internet now. God bless. Right. There's a sizable community for like, essentially like Neo hoteps as you will, that will <laughs> love Dave Chappelle. All right. And there's a yeah, damn. That's that's the episode we gotta do, dog. That's what we gotta we gotta do something about the neo hoteps. I wanted I didn't want to call them neo, <laughs> but I'm down. Call them like neo pets or something. I don't know. Well, maybe that's <laughs> maybe that's worse. If we're talking about black people's pets, but <laughs> the um. <laughs> and now no. I'll lead it to Sean for his last remark. No, no, no. I just want to say this too. Like, yeah, yeah. Go ahead, Ben. It's funny because um. He says, I, I, I'm sure there were like, I'm sure like the Tucker Carlson's and people of his ilk were like trying to say like, hey, you know, sticking up for Dave Chappelle. Like, I'm sure they were out there. But it's funny because in the special, he says like, you know, my problem has never been with, with gay people. It's been with white people, um, which I'm just like, please stop. But, um, you know, I'm like, did they see that part? <laughs> you know, and 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 to be honest with you, like, although Dave Chappelle doesn't do a whole lot of media and stuff like that, like, I wish somebody would ask him, okay, like, so you said your problem isn't with gay people, it's with white people. What, what's your problem with white people? You know, I would I would like to hear him, you know, articulate that. Because he spent the whole time trying to, you know, dance around, I'm not actually homophobic, I'm not actually transphobic. Okay, well, it seems like you're white-phobic. What, what's the reason? Well, or, and then, like, there are interesting points, because, like, I've made comments about, like, the whiteness of the lgbtq movement like and like how like th th there's this idea that like a lot of gay people just believe that okay our str our struggle is over we've won we have west hollywood we did it and like meanwhile there's like this whole like other aspect the intersectionalities of like um the the gender spectrum and the sexuality spectrum and all these other different things that people tend to forget all right but there's no way in hell that dave Chappelle is the man to make that kind of joke or make that kind of point because that's not an experience he lives from and that that even gets to another point of comedy a lot of stand-up comedy is speaking from lived experiences or pulling from moments or things that point to conversation you're talking about when people say dave Chappelle is punching down he's talking about experiences he fundamentally doesn't understand and then he's equating no, wait, why are all these? And it's true. There are a lot of like um, white people who are LGBT in media who are attacking Dave Chappelle and they are also racially blind too and don't understand that angle. I've got tons of criticism for that as well. But for Dave sure. Chappelle's got to realize he's on the other side of that too. Where like he is stepping up in a lane that he is way behind on his tolls for. He is way past on where he is and he needs to sit down, shut up and like realize that, okay, if you decide that you're not going to change your comedy, you're not going to change your like politics, whatever. All right. Freedom of speech does not mean freedom from consequences. Everyone, like you said, Bam, is a troll on social media. Everyone gets to be a stand-up now. And so now you get to hear a bunch of people who think they're stand-ups but really aren't with the fury of a thousand sons talking shit on you. Sorry. And also, and, and also, like, it's not just white gay people that are coming for you. I'm sure that there are some black, Hispanic, whatever. Yes, there are. The community that are coming for you, too. But he just completely erases that. And, and honestly, like, that's the worst part of it for me. Which is what the white I, gays are doing to begin with. So it's like now he's on the side of the white gays. You know, it's like, dude, like, and, 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 and even that that concept that, like, 
he discovered that a white person that's LGBTQ could be racist. Dog, like that's old, dude. Like, what are we talking about? Like, we're living in a world, man. Like, that's not a new concept. You're not a genius because you're like, hey, guys, some of these gay white men are racist, too. It's like, yeah, well, duh. Like, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> I don't know. It's, yeah, Dave Chappelle, Bill Maher, comedy sucks because they don't evolve and go on. Uh, now it's time for the surprise D block. No, I'm kidding. Uh, yeah. that, that is <laughs> that that is all the power report we have, and we give you. No one ever complains. We give them too little power report, pretty much in any given week. So, um, that's good. But anyways, uh, Bam, you be found on the We Made It podcast, and yes, anything check else got? We Made It podcast. Um, and uh, you know, Caesar couldn't make it. He's feeling uh, kind of down, but make sure you go ahead and follow Caesar at We Made It Seas on. YouTube. That's not um, C's like grabbing. It's C's C E E Z. We made it C's on YouTube. Thank you for the podcast audience on there, and also check out We Made It Podcast. Uh, we Made It Podcast dot com. All social media platforms, etc. Um, Sean and I can be found on Audioface doing music pretty much every single week. We've got a <laughs> interesting one this week with a oh, Sugger, Coldplay, and. What, what was the last? Phineas, that's scraps. right. Phineas. Scraps. Oh, no, not scraps? Okay, whatever. Not scraps, no. Uh, no, <laughs> no sorry. We, 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 we'll get to it there. Court packing. That's what court packing is for. Um, okay. And, yeah. We'll talk about it. Yeah, uh, check us out talking about music-related things there. Actually, our Dave Chappelle segment, the, our first comments on Dave Chappelle were on Audio Face, so make sure you check that out there. Um, and, yeah, youtube.com slash Dan from the internet for more Power Report. Um, there are going to be a lot of exciting things happening in the power report space and the dan fionet space over the next month or so even so um get excited for that i know i am and um we'll be talking very soon about that and more and about many more things happening on the left cheers bye for a camp.